I can't remember when we started this, I think early summer, but this whole study of the underread books of the Bible is ending next week. Next week, we're going to look at the book of Jude, and that's it. Then we'll, the two, two weeks from today is our family fun night for downtown Christmas, so be sure and invite people you know, especially those who have kids, but you don't have to have kids to enjoy it. Uh, that's two weeks from tonight, and then the two weeks after that are the, the week before and the week after Christmas when we won't have anything midweek. So after next week, we won't have this Bible study until the first Wednesday in January. And I plan to start a study in Galatians. So back to more of a verse-by-verse study through a book of the Bible. Uh, so we're looking at two books tonight, two very short books. In fact, Third John is the shortest book in the whole Bible. There's your trivia for the night in case you need to amaze anybody. Uh, second and Third John, the author... The author's name is not given in either of these books, but guess what? The author of the Gospel of John didn't give his name either. He just calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. In this case, he calls himself the elder. Just about everybody agrees that it was the Apostle John. The early church thought so, or it wouldn't be in the Bible today. Um, that term, the elder, doesn't just, you know, it, it, it can mean someone older, but in that context, it means an official in the church. That was a title. That was a church title. Now, people from other denominations disagree with us on this. And when we get to heaven, we'll see who's right. But what seems to me to be the case when I look at the New Testament is the term elder is interchangeable with the term bishop and the term overseer. In other words, an elder is a pastor. He's not somebody different than the pastor. Again, Bible churches, uh, Presbyterian churches, uh, other, some Baptist churches are elder-led, and that's a separate ca category. Uh, and, and again, I don't, I don't think it really matters, but I believe that when John calls himself the elder, he's calling himself a pastor. Um, now, he ex what's that? Yeah, we'll find out, yeah. Come up to me in heaven and slap me around if I'm wrong. That's all right. I'll forgive you. But I think it's interesting that he's able to call himself the elder and expect everybody to know who he is. That just tells you it's definitely somebody noteworthy, and we believe it was John the Apostle. Now, who were the recipients? Second, Second John is addressed to the, the chosen lady and her children. Uh, now, very likely that was a church, a local church especially when you read verse 13. So John may have been vague about this because of the possibility of persecution. If somebody intercepted that letter, they may have used it against that local body of believers, and so he sort of wrote it in code. Maybe that's why Revelation was written the way it was too. We don't know, but that's, that's a possibility. Third John is, is addressed to a person named Gaius, who is probably a leader in that church, maybe the pastor of that church. So let's look at these two books separately. We won't read the entire body, but we'll read most of the body of the, of the letters because they're short. All right, so verse 4 in 2 John. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady... I am writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. Now John was a preacher, and so like a preacher, he has three points. At least that's what I see. 
And one of them is love one another. This is not a new command. John knew that better than anybody. He's the one who recorded it in his gospel. Jesus commanded it the night he was arrested, John 13, 34. He said, a new command I give to you, love one another. Well, it's not that Jesus had never said love each other, but his point was, you haven't been doing this yet. Now I'm telling you, this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be my disciples. Isn't it interesting? We don't usually think that way. And certainly people in the world don't think that about Christianity. If you went up to someone who wasn't a believer and you said, what is the central message of Christianity? Very few would say, love people, love God, love others. The central message of Christianity is love. Even a lot of Christians wouldn't say that. They might say something like, well, you know, if you choose the right God, you go to heaven when you die or, uh, you know, follow the Ten Commandments. But consistently, 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 we hear the central message is love. And of course, that's not some squishy emotional sentiment. It's putting others ahead of yourself. It's putting God ahead of yourself. here's, Here's something that'll break your heart. I read a story once about a man who was an alcoholic and then got saved. And people were asking him, he was given his testimony, and afterwards somebody said, so, uh, when you look back on your former life, is there anything you miss about your former life? I don't know who asked him, who had the gall to ask him that. He said, you know, there's only one thing I miss about my old life, and that is the fellowship uh, that I had with my fellow drunks. I don't have that now. Mm. And that ought to break your heart. You know, I go to church. I'm glad I'm not drinking anymore. I'm glad I don't have all that, all the troubles that brought to me physically, emotionally, uh, economically, uh, and, and the people at church are all nice, and it's good to be around good people who make good decisions, but nobody's really, nobody really, you know, I, I don't really have that closeness to anybody like I had when we were all just sitting around getting drunk together. And that ought to break your heart, because the church, not just this church, the church, capital C, ought to be a place where you find fellowship, where you find brotherhood and sisterhood with people where you have find people who you can bear your soul before and not be afraid. And, and that's the way it should be. Love one another. You know, the Pharisees, in verse 6, he says, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. If you would have said that to a Pharisee, he would have said, well, I'm good at that. You know, they knew the commands of Scripture. There were 613 of them in the Old Testament. They knew them backwards and forwards. But they weren't people who loved. They obeyed rules, which is good. But if there's no love to it, remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. He didn't write that for your wedding, by the way. He wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to say, okay, here you are, Corinthian church. You're doing all these great things. You got all these spiritual gifts, but you don't have love. So it's just like a noisy gong. It's like a clanging cymbal. It's not, it's not music to God's ears. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. That sums up the law. And verse 6 basically says, you don't really love God unless you're doing that. You don't really love God unless you're keeping His command to love others. So that's, one, that's part of the message of 2 John. The second part is guard the truth. This is something we don't talk about much these days, but doctrinal truth is key. Uh, verse 7, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. All right, I need to ask you all a question. And 
I answer honestly, I'm not going to judge either way, but how many of you have ever heard of, of, of a teaching called Gnosticism? Okay, so maybe half. All right, so Gnosticism was a heresy in the early church. And I'm not an expert on it, but the best way I can describe it is they believed in God, they believed in Jesus, they did not believe Jesus was divine. They did not believe that Jesus was a divine human being because they believed that God would not dirty himself with humanity. You know, that material things, human bodies, earthly stuff was too dirty for God. He would never have entered this world, right? So whatever Jesus was, he was not a human with, he was not fully God and fully man. So this is why Paul, uh, John says in verse 7, there are deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Some of those Gnostics would say, oh, well, he was a specter. He was like a hologram, right? And others would say, well, you know, he was, he was, he was an image of God, but he wasn't really God. They, had, they came up with these different things. By the way, it's my first John. If you, if you read the book of first John, it starts with the words, he who we have seen, who our eyes have seen, who our ears have heard, who our hands have handled. And John's like, we touched him. We put our arms around him. We know he was real. This we proclaim to you because there was this idea in the early church, this, this false teaching, even in the early church, that Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man. Um, now, that's why he says this person, or first of all, he says they've gone out into the world, which means they didn't just spring up out of nowhere. They started in the church. They've gone out into the world. They started in the church, and then they drifted off into this heresy. And that's usually the way it happens, which is why we have to be so careful. You can't just look at, well, this person is a member of X church. This person's pastored this number of churches and then in a denomination I respect. So he must have his, uh, you know, he's got the bona fides. I can trust him. No, not necessarily. He calls such people the Antichrist. Now here's an interesting thing. And I don't know how many of y'all know this. There's only two times in the Bible that word is used, Antichrist. Neither of them are in Revelation and neither of them refer to the person that we talk about when we talk about Antichrist, right? The the, the, the person who's going to rise up toward the end times and deceive many. The only two times that, that word is used in the Bible are here and 1 John 4, 3. Both times it's talking about this. Anybody who says that Jesus Christ isn't fully God and fully man is Antichrist. Not some future guy, not some guy with 666 tattooed on his head. No, anybody who denies the real identity, the, the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus is Antichrist. Literally, they are against what God is accomplishing in the Messiah. And then he says in verse 8, don't lose what we've worked for. He's not talking about salvation, right? Because we didn't work for salvation. He's talking about, he's an apostle, right? John's probably very old when he's writing this. And he's thinking back to all his brothers who've walked in the footsteps of Jesus, many of them now martyred for the faith, and he may be the last one left. At least that's what church history, church tradition tells us. And he's thinking, all those people who gave their lives to build this, to spread this faith, and now y'all are going to throw it away for the latest fad that doesn't even make sense? So you, you can imagine how, how much John felt this. Don't don't you dare believe somebody who didn't know Jesus when he comes to you and says, hey, I've got this new revelation. 
John's like, I, I built this thing. I knew Jesus. I'm telling you who he was. Don't believe what this other guy says just because it's trendy, just because it sounds uh, exciting and interesting. He says in verse 9, uh, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue. I, I like that term because apparently those false teachers thought, well, we're the real enlightened ones. We're going on ahead of you to the higher truth. And that's always the, the temptation is to think, yeah, what I found, okay, you've got your basic Christianity. Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's, that's good as far as it goes. But I've found something better, something deeper, something higher. Watch out for that. Be careful of that. And, and I've got more to say, so I'll just jump to the next point because it's related. Reject false teachers. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Now that sounds rude, doesn't it? Anybody who doesn't preach what I preach, don't even invite them into your house. But you have to understand the, the importance of hospitality in the ancient world. So the way it worked, if you went to church, wherever John was writing this letter, and we, we're not sure where that was, so let's say your, your church is, you know, ancient Conroe. And every Sunday, every Lord's Day, you and your friends would gather after work was over, because it was a work day, and y'all would gather in someone's home, and whoever was your pastor would get up and he would read the Word of God, and maybe somebody else would have a word or something, but you'd, you'd gather and you'd teach. But if there was ever a visiting preacher, that was exciting, right? Because this was a new person to hear the Word from, and that would happen sometimes, so hey, there's a visiting preacher in town. You know, John, are you going to bring him into your house? Joe, are you going to have him over at your... Yeah, I'll have him over at mine. Okay, well, I'm, I'll bring the potato salad. Let's, let's take care of this brother because uh, that's what you did. You took care of that brother. And by bringing them into your home, you were supporting their ministry because not only were you giving them a place to stay, but you were, in a sense, endorsing them. So, you know... Uh, Ralph has this visiting preacher in his house, and then he comes to the church next Sunday. He says, here's brother so-and-so, and he came to my house last week, and I can testify he's a man of God. Let's hear what he has to say. So what John is saying is, don't do that unless you know they preach the truth. He's saying, be careful. Be careful. Again, it sounds rude, but think about it. There are lots of people who you are kind and gentle to, but you would not invite them into your house because you're afraid of what they might do to your family. You don't trust them. They've not given evidence that they are trustworthy. It's the same thing with God's word. You should be kind to everyone. You should love everyone. But not everybody should you give the opportunity to stand behind a pulpit or stand up before your life group and say, thus saith the Lord. You just shouldn't. Oh, but we're Americans. You've got freedom of speech. Absolutely. But this is the kingdom of God. And you have to be careful with the truth of God's word, and you have to reject false teachers. Um, early church history says, over, this happened over and over again. Gnosticism was just the first we've identified. There were so many heresies, especially early in those days, that had to be fought off by church leaders. And the apostles knew that would happen, and that's why every book of the New Testament, you can check me on this, but I think I'm right, Every book of the New Testament has something in it about watch out for false teachers or watch out for false teaching. There's really two things that are in every book of the New Testament besides Jesus. That's watch out for false teaching and love each other. Seems like those were the two things that God was most concerned about 
in the early church is, I don't want y'all fighting. I want you to be of one mind, and I want you to watch out for the deceiver who will come in and lead you astray by preaching a message that sounds good, that sounds Christian, but isn't. And I don't think either one of those have changed. In fact, I know they haven't. God's word is still true. Now, I want to be careful in what I say because there are Christians who appoint themselves heresy hunters and they go around disagreeing with fine points of everything their, their Sunday school teacher says or everything their pastor says. And they take them aside and just rail against them or they spread rumor. Oh, you know, he's teaching false, he's ta- teaching uh, heresy because he doesn't agree with me about the end times or, you know, he reads out of the wrong translation of the Bible. You can go so far off track with this. <coughs> you, have to, you have to ask yourself, uh, first of all, you have to ask yourself, is this crucial to the gospel? Is this central to the text? You know, I got news for you. Whether you agree with me about the interpretation of the book of Revelation isn't going to decide whether either one of us gets into heaven, okay? So we can disagree on that and worship in the same church. There's a lot of things like that. You can read out of the King James or the NIV while I read out of the ESV, and I think we're still able to be saved, right? Those aren't things that we should split the church over. But there are things that are worth that, the identity of Jesus being chief among them. And there's, there are other things like that. You have to be wise enough to know those things, and you have to be wise enough and humble enough to approach someone with grace from the start. So, you know, before I move on, let me just say this. When you hear someone in, a, in an official position, whether life group leader, a deacon, pastor, staff member, and they say something that you think is not biblical, how do you handle that? I know how I want you to handle it if it's me. And that's come to, yeah, yeah just pop me in the face. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it may come to that, you know. If I'm preaching heresy, I do want you to slug me. But uh, first, come talk to me personally. You know, assume the best. Assume, okay, Jeff just didn't say that right. Maybe I heard wrong, or maybe he just didn't say it right, but I need to sit down and make sure. Because we're brothers. We're, we're, we're siblings in the kingdom of God. You know, let's love each other. Assume the best of one another. I do want to talk to you. I do want to hear from you. There are times, there have been times in my ministry where I've said things, and someone's come to me and said, you said this the other day. I'm like, I did? Oh, no, that's not at all what I meant. Then times when, honestly, they heard me wrong. I went back and checked the tape, and I'm like, oh, thank goodness I didn't say what they thought I said. But either way, it was good for us to clear that up. And, and if, I mean, I'm probably the least intimidating person on earth, but if, you, if it bothers you, bring somebody with you, or, you know, or whoever, whoever you go talk to, and you, you're just a little nervous about going to talk to them, bring a, a trusted friend with you. But don't go any further with it than that. Don't talk it up among all your friends and coworkers and neighbors until you've had a chance to talk it over with the person themselves. That's just being a good Christian brother or sister. And if that person, if I respond badly, then you can take it further. Then you can talk to somebody else and say, what are we going to do about this? I mean, I, I just heard from his own mouth that he doesn't believe that Jesus was really born of a virgin. Or I, he, I heard from his own mouth, he doesn't really believe Christ is returning. Or he doesn't really believe that, that uh, Jesus is the only way to salvation. You do need to take action. 
And, and it could be any number of things. I'm not going to advise you on where to go from that. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. But that's, that's, that, that's where you need to take it further. And, and one other thing before I move on. Be careful with celebrity preachers. I'm not saying don't listen to guys on the radio or on tele well, television. There's not many good ones, but there are a few. Um, I'm not saying that you can't read the books. Uh, you know, when your, your Christian friend comes and says, oh, this is the best book by brother so-and-so, and, -so, and you, I'm not saying throw it away because the guy's famous. I'm saying be careful. You don't know that person, and you can't observe their fruit. That's what the Bible tells us to do. By their fruit, you will know them. Well, you can't observe their fruit. You don't see their daily lives. You don't see how they treat their spouse. You don't see how they treat their kids or, or, or how, they, how they talk to other people or how they live their lives. So be careful. You can learn from those folks, but don't, don't invest yourself into them. So how many of us have had somebody we just admired so much and then it turns out they were a wolf in sheep's clothing or more charitably, they, they stumbled and it hurt so badly. So watch out for that. The Word of God stands on its own. Remember that. We don't need to add anything to it. And that's 2 John. Now let's look at 3 John. How am I doing on time? Okay. 3 John is shorter. I'll try to be faster. Uh, there's four points to this. John suddenly became not Baptist. So um, that was a joke. Only Bob got it. So, so 3 John, one of the things we get from it is the joy of being a spiritual parent. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 2. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. It gives John great joy to see his children walking in the truth. You know, in two, sense, in two senses, we get that. I mean, any of you who've ever raised kids... You get that, right? You see your kids doing well. There's nothing that makes you happier than to see your kids doing well. Well, as a, as a spiritual leader, nothing makes you happier than to see your spiritual children doing well. Uh, I can testify as a pastor that there are times, every pastor has those times where you feel like, I'm not doing any good. This is, I'm, God might as well just kill me and bring somebody better. And every time he's like, hey, have you seen so-and-so? They're doing great. Yeah, but Lord, I don't have anything to do with that. So they're doing great. Be happy about it. One of your kids is doing good things. Look at the growth you've seen in her. Look at, look at the, the ministry that he started and, and how faithful he's being. You can celebrate that. And guess what? You don't have to be a pastor to feel that way. You know, there's a story in the book of Acts where there's this real talented speaker named Apollos. And he's speaking and people are just amazed at his speaking, but he, there's things he doesn't know about the faith. You know who takes him aside and says, let's explain to you the full story. You know who it is? It's not Paul. It's not one of the apostles. Aquila and Priscilla, this man and woman. By the way, Priscilla's named first. This man and woman who set him down, lay people, tent makers, and say, let me, let's explain this to you. You think they were proud? You think they were excited as they saw Apollos go on to be a powerful preacher? Yeah. You can have that same experience. When you invest in someone's life, and then you watch them grow, and you say, you know, I, I did part of that. I mean, God obviously did all of it, but he used me for part of that. 
That's an amazing feeling. And you can experience that. And that's what God wants you to experience. Take responsibility for the souls of other people and you get that joy. The joy of being a spiritual parent. Second thing, the necessity of supporting faithful missionaries. Verse 5. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. What is he talking about? He's talking about what we talked about before. Visiting preachers, people who are traveling, spreading the gospel. You know, Paul did this. He'd go through different cities and stop and preach at the synagogue, preach in the streets. But if there was a church that had already been planted, he'd go there first. This is what he's talking about. You've been faithful to support those people. Verse 6 says, they have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. Um, when he says accepting nothing from the pagans, what is he talking about? There were actually in that culture, I know it's hard for us to understand because if somebody said, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a traveling philosopher. We'd say, well, how do you make money? But in that culture, in Greek culture, a traveling philosopher would draw a crowd. They would, people would come to hear, what's the latest idea? What's the latest way of thinking? So there were people who would just go from town to town giving their thoughts, and folks would gather to hear them. And they would pass the plate, so to speak, or pass the hat. That's how they made a living. And they'd go to the next town, and they'd tell their friends, man, I got so much money out of those people in that last town. And Paul says, that's not what, I, that's not what these guys are doing. They're not asking anything at all. So if you just give them a place to stay, you're keeping them alive. You're, you're supporting their ministry. And remember, when you support those who spread the gospel, in a sense, you're their co-workers. And that's what Paul says, so that we may work together for the truth. And I think any one of us would say that when the Harringtons come home from Costa Rica, or when the Fleetwoods come home from Colombia. Those are two missionary couples that have connection to our church. We would, we would look at them and we would be in awe of what they do, and none of us would say, oh, I'm your coworker, because we'd say, I just sit around here in Conroe where it's nice and comfortable, and you're out there doing the Lord's work. But Paul says, or John says, no, when you show hospitality to them, when you encourage them, when you support them, you are their co-workers. I guarantee you, both of those couples and any other missionary you could meet will tell you, we couldn't do this by ourselves. We need the support of people back home. We need your prayers. We need your financial support. We need your encouragement. And that's true of any kind of missionary support. Certainly, giving to the cooperative program, giving, you know, when you give your offerings, your tithes and offerings, uh, a significant percentage goes to support those missionaries. When you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering or, or uh, Annie Armstrong or those kinds of offerings, other things like sending people on mission trips or supporting uh, evangelists here in this country. We have a man in our own congregation, John Harper, who's a, he's a professional evangelist. He's our staff evangelist. He preaches Disciple nows and revivals all across this part of the United States and wins many to the Lord. So when you support people like that, you're co-workers with them. John is endorsing that here. Then there's a warning about the danger of wanting to be first. This is kind of the heart of the letter, I believe. Verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. It's not saying that Diotrephes was somebody who was competitive, okay? That's not a bad thing. This is something else. 
He says, so when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. So John's saying, I wrote to the whole church, but it didn't work. So I'm writing to you, hoping you'll get something done. Who's Diotrephes? We don't know. We don't know anything about, else about him. He may have been a leader of another church in the area, or maybe an influential leader in Gaius's church. We know a little what, his, what John had a problem with. Three things he mentions. He's gossiping about the apostles and their ministry team. They've, he, as he says, talking this malicious nonsense. He's refusing to show hospitalities to the missionaries that John is sending. And he's intimidating other people in the church into not accepting them too. He's thwarting the will of God, the work of God. Now, why? Because he likes to put himself first. In my experience, when you, when you analyze any church fight, that's what it comes down to. Somebody, and often multiple people, want to be first. I wish I could say that, I, that most church fights are over the, the truths of the gospel, but I, I've honestly never been part of a church fight or seen a church fight that was over the doctrines of the faith. It's usually over somebody wants to be first. Sometimes it's the pastor. Sometimes it's a pastor who wants to get his way and does not respect the flock of God. He doesn't respect them enough to say, you know, you have the same access to the Holy Spirit I do. Let's work together. I know I've been in the position of pastor, so you know the buck stops here, but let's work together. Let's, let's discover the will of God. Let's, let's move together. To, no, he instead is... This is the way it's going to be. Anybody who doesn't like it can hit the road, and that's where the trouble starts. Sometimes it's the pastor. Sometimes it's an influential person in the church who's used to getting his or her way. And suddenly, suddenly God starts doing a new thing. And everybody else is excited about it, but not this person. Because now that there's all these people coming to faith, well, now I don't have that same influence anymore. I want to be first. And so what is actually a work of God turns into, no, this is bad. We need to oppose this. Um, sometimes it's two people at odds with one another. That's never happened in any church you've been a part of, has it? Where two people did, disagreed and instead of handling it like Christians, they, they let it spread throughout the church. You know, this goes all the way back to Scripture. I mean, the time when the New Testament was being written, Paul writes about it in Philippians, the happiest book in the whole Bible. And yet he has to take a moment where he says, okay, you two ladies, you need to get along because you're tearing the church apart. Yodia and Syntyche are their names. It happened back then. It can happen today. Why? Because deep down inside, we all want to be first. We all want to get our way. And that's true not just in the church. That's true in other relationships. Why else does Paul in Ephesians 5 tell wives to submit to their husbands? Why else does he tell husbands to lay down their lives for their wives? Because the only way to make a marriage work is to say, okay, I got needs, but I don't come first. We come first. That's When you get down to it, submission, that's what submission is. Submission is saying, it's not about me, it's about we, it's about us. So, yeah, I got needs, I got desires, but I'm going to put those below us. So whenever 
you and I are in any kind of conflict, I don't just mean between the two of us, but in, whenever in any conflict in any part of life, we always have to ask ourselves, is this really about Jesus or is this just about me getting my way? And gosh, 99.99% of the time, it's going to be about getting my way. And we need, to, we need to admit that and confess that. And another way to ask it is, if Jesus suddenly appeared in the flesh and said, so what are you troubled about? And you told him, would he say, oh yeah, absolutely, you need to, you need to fight that. Probably not. Probably not. He's standing there with the nail holes in his hand and you're saying, well, he called me an ugly name, you know, or he, he did something I didn't like and he's just shaking his head. Third and final thing or fourth and final thing, it's about the power of a good example. So here's kind of the way the book wraps up. Dear friend, verse 11, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. My friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. It reminds me, again, of what Jesus said about how you tell a false teacher. Evaluate them by their fruits. By their fruits, you will know them. Some people are very authoritative and persuasive, but if they aren't demonstrating spiritual fruit, they're not from God. Don't follow them. What is spiritual fruit? Is it at a big church? Is it eloquent speech? Spiritual fruit is quite simply love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for godly character. Unfortunately, we're living in a time when we don't wait to see people's character. If they're talented, if they can grow a church, we put them in charge. And we, have, we don't take the time to see, are they a good person? And, and John is telling us, don't imitate what's evil. Imitate what's good. Don't endorse what's evil. He gives the example of Demetrius. Must have been a mutual friend, probably the guy who brought the letter to Gaius. And he's saying, listen, you need to spend some time around this guy. This is the kind of person we're trying to produce as Christians, as churches. So ask yourself the question, do you have a few examples like that in your life? Do you have people that you can look to and say, now that's someone I want to emulate. There's nobody, no human being you'll know who's perfect. But if you're observant, you'll probably see some people who have some qualities you wish you had. And those are good people to befriend. I, I, can, I can go down a list of people who, after being friends with them for a while, I was better. And that's, those are the friends you want to accumulate. Yes, you need your friends that are not believers. You need to influence them toward Christ. But you also need those people who are further along in the faith. And, and that, again, is part of the purpose of the church and why you don't just come to church and sit in a pew and listen to a sermon. You can do that from home, but that's not church. Church is rubbing shoulders with real people and helping them when they're down, but also seeing those people inside the church that you think, yeah, I need to be more like her. I need to be more like him in these ways. And then the flip side of that question is, Am I being an example to anybody else? Is there anything in me that I'm able to encourage someone else with, inspire someone else with? Uh, that's part of our job. You know, it's amazing. There are these books of the Bible like this, like Philemon, like Timothy, Titus, 
you look at it and you think, okay, that's a that's one person, and God chose to dedicate an entire book of the Bible to that person. And it just it just says people matter. We matter to God. These letters, these letters that were written to individual people, God ultimately meant for all of us. And that shows how how important we are to Him. All right. Well, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we are important to you, important enough that you share with us the truth that sets us free. And I pray that we would keep our eyes open so that we would ward off anything that is false, but also, Lord, so that we would see the people around us who need encouragement and the people we can learn from and be encouraged by. Lord, most of all, help us to see you everywhere you appear to us. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.